This episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast is brought to you by Hamilton, a value-add investment and development firm in Nashville, Tennessee, focused on bringing passive real estate investment opportunities directly to your inbox. Visit www.investwithhamilton.com invest to sign up for upcoming investment opportunities. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Cobble, and we are bringing you I believe the final episode for 2021. What a crazy year it's been. Uh, really excited to get this show on the road. Uh, I'm sitting across from the Jeremy Young <laughs> at Tootsie Lou's Tacos. I can't tell you guys how excited I am uh, for this group to be opening up. Uh, they've got a really cool origin story. Um, he and his partners actually moved here from Austin to start this concept here in Nashville. And today we're going to be talking more about micro units. Uh, Y'all know my concept, The Wash. Uh, We had a very similar conversation with Chad Newton at Eastside Bami, Eastside Fa, uh, about his uh, experience with micro units. So we're going to do the same with Jeremy today and talk about the restaurant industry. So Jeremy, uh, it was a a very brief introduction, but tell us a little bit about yourself and your background in restaurants. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Well, thanks for having me on here. Um, You know, I've been cooking for more, more time in my adult life than I have not been cooking. Um, started in in California and uh, kind of cooked my way up through the ranks of some some more fine dining restaurants um, and before moving out to Austin and um, came out to Austin to go to culinary school and check that box on my resume and then you know just cooked my way through a lot of restaurants in, in Austin Texas um, kind of got away from fine dining and got into a Great hospitality group out there, Tatsia. Um, they have, I think, eight restaurants now and a couple bar concepts. Um, and so I had a, the great privilege of kind of working my way up into kitchen leadership there and then kind of breaking out into um, more upper management duties in that company. And um, that was a hugely formative part of my career because I, for the first time, got the chance to actually manage, you know, costs and and look at a, a P&L and, you know, dig into all the bones of the business, um, which really helped give me a, a pretty solid skill set, not just with cooking, but with leading people and with opening businesses and opening restaurants. Uh, so uh, worked for Tatsia in Austin and then uh, COVID hit. And when COVID hit, that kind of just rattled a lot of uh the status quo that existed in the restaurant industry, everybody was pivoting and everybody was trying oh, yeah. not to lose their businesses and still trying to remain profitable and successful. And, um, you know, I thought it was time for a change. And uh, my wife, Megan, agreed with me. And uh, my uh, our chef partner, Drew, who's kind of the third part of Tootsie Lou's, uh, was on board. And so we decided to kind of piece together a concept that would make sense for COVID times, make sense for our, our interests. And... Uh, we started hunting around for a city to come to that we felt like we could thrive in. And that ended up being Nashville. Yeah. Nashville has become such a, a, a food scene. It's, it's, it's been really fun for me to watch. I I tell the story all the time about when I was in high school and, you know, there was a line around the block when Chipotle opened because that was like the coolest thing that had ever opened up in Nashville. And now we have all of these chef driven concepts and unique ventures that, I don't think Nashville has ever experienced before. It's it's fun watching this wave of all of y'all coming in and, and doing that. What is Tootsie Lou's Tacos? So Tootsie Lou's Tacos is, uh, you know, pure and simple. It's just an expression of 
our fascination and our love for Mexican flavors. Um, and it's been a long uh, love affair in my life, in Megan's life, in Drew's life. Um, you know, Megan, my wife Megan is born and raised in Texas. So, and I'm come from California. So it's like when you grow up in, in like a, a state that borders on Mexico. You have to have tacos. It, the cuisine is everywhere. The culture is everywhere. It's so immersive. It's the go-to late night food. It's the go-to drunk food. It's the go-to cheap food. Um, and so we were very familiar with all these flavors but had never really cooked it professionally, which seemed kind of strange at a certain point. Um, you know, back in uh, late 2019, early 2020 is when, you know, the restaurants that I was working at, that Drew was working at, they started to shutter, they started to furlough people because of COVID, and we were there at our house. Uh, all of a sudden, with all this time off to like work and develop on a, a concept, and all we really wanted to cook with were tacos. Um, it was just the natural thing that came to us. And uh, at a certain point, is like, man, maybe we should give this a try as a yeah. an actual business. Um, so you know, with that in mind, we kind of developed this this model, and it it kind of stems from our fine dining background a bit, where it's very ingredient driven, um, trying to keep things relatively focused on on the cuisine of like Mexico City. Um, and so we're trying to stay away from like fusion, and we're trying to stay away from. Uh, the Tex-Mex side of things and really do kind of our best impression of authentic Mexican food through our, our culinary lens. Yeah. Um, so that's essentially the concept. You know, we, wanna, we want it to be approachable. We want it to be um, something that's easily accessible to everybody in the neighborhood and, um, you know, obviously push forward the best flavors that we can. Yeah. I mean, you guys are doing a phenomenal job of it. The first time that I ever, I guess... I guess tasted y'all's tacos was at the the Giffords Bacon Pop Up. Yeah, and uh, y'all had obviously collaborated with Giffords on a taco, and man, I still I still dream of that taco. <laughs> That's a good one. It was so good. Yeah, that was uh, that was a, we were so fortunate to meet Nathan Gifford, and he's such a you know that's a, a greater part of the Nashville restaurant community is that yeah. there's all these ambassadors that live here in Nashville that are just open arms, welcoming to any newcomers and. Uh, I think that's like a wonderful feature of this city that speaks uh, volumes about your food scene. You know, it's like you can't really, in my opinion, you can't really build a great food scene by excluding people. You right. know, it's kind of like the more the merrier get in here and then you let quality uh, be the, the guiding light from there on out. So, yeah, I mean, we were talking about that a little bit before we went live, just about how, you know, the restaurant industry in most cities is often very cutthroat. In Nashville, it's almost the exact opposite. I mean, everybody wants to help each other. They're so welcoming and giving of their time. Uh, and it is truly a community instead of everybody operating on their own island. Yeah. But, I mean, was that was that a big shock to you when you moved to Nashville? You know, it was. It, it, it remains a big shock to me. You know, it's something that, um, it, you know, half of it was a determining factor as to why we came out here. You know, because I had been in Nashville before and uh, to do some food events and work some festivals and things like that. And that was kind of my initial in introduction, uh, was coming out to cook with Sarah Gavigan of Otaku Ramen. Oh, cool. Um, she invited us out from, from Texas to do an event with her and was such an amazing hostess and took us around and showed us, you know, Husk and Pegleg and, you know, all of these Dinos, all these amazing institutions in Nashville. And so I, I already kind of knew that the scene was different here. 
Um, it was a little more welcoming. It was a little more warm. But that was definitely, you know, looking at Nashville from an Austin point of view or a California point of view, that's definitely a, a sign that stood out to us is, you know, they, they want food here. They want new things. Um, they're not trying to, you know, push people down so that they can float up. You know, right. it, it's, it was a little less competitive here. Um, and I think that was a huge, huge part of why we chose this city. Uh, you know, because it gets, it's so funny to me, you know, having cooked in LA and San Francisco and Austin and, you know, Drew did a lot of time in Chicago at, at Michelin restaurants and it's always so, you know, just you versus them. Oh, yeah. Kind of adversarial even, you know. Uh, they, it's, it's about who you know. It's about, you know, everything's kind of perceived as a threat initially where it's like if there's a new chef that comes to town and tries to open a concept, everybody's like, what if it's better than mine? You know, we, I don't necessarily want to help that person out. And so we were just so tired of that culture um, and also it's kind of seeing in other cities how that really kind of waters down the culture. Right. Has interesting food and brave food is not really successful in those environments because you have to compete against all these people that don't want you to succeed. But when you have neighbors that are really rooting for you, you're actually able to succeed and then you're able to turn around and help them out and promote their business and do collaborations and takeovers and all this fun stuff. Um, that really makes a culinary scene special, you know. Do you think it's because the the more creative uh, food scene in Nashville is relatively young? I mean, compared to you I know so. Chicago and L.A. and some of these cities where you know they've been world they've had world renowned restaurants for decades, but Nashville you know had a, had only a handful up until really I would say this last economic cycle. You know, 2010 on is when a lot of this has really started to pick up. Do you think that that has anything to do with it? I think it's certainly age. I think age of, of an environment definitely is a huge factor. Um, it's not the only factor. Uh, and I think that a major contributing factor that a lot of people ignore is is the community, the guests themselves. Like, whoever's actually going out and eating, not so much the restaurateurs, the owners, the chefs, um, but more the people that are coming and dining, if they're excited about new things and they're, you know, willing to try something new with an open mind because yeah. they are excited for just an influx of something different, that's kind of the spark that will carry a scene to maturity, you know, rather than it being like a bubble that just is big for a second, then it pops and goes away, you know, um, it's kind of the enthusiasm for the culture and the cuisine that keeps it going. Um, and those are definitely, I feel like, for me, I, I came to a place where I was not even looking for the fully developed culinary scene anymore. I was looking for like the signs of life that it was going to happen. And I think that's a lot of my attraction to Nashville, a lot of Tootsie Lou's attraction to Nashville was coming here and seeing, oh, there's pop-ups on every corner. There's takeovers happening at this bar. A lot of these restaurants that people told us were the best in town were only a few years old. They weren't these like ancient institutions, right. you know, and that's those are all positive symptoms of su future success, you know. So it was more it was rather than going to a place that's already established, it's like, OK, we could go to New York, go to Chicago, try to it, compete against all these like titans that are already there. Rather than doing that, it became much more appealing to us to go and be on the ground floor of something that we knew was going to be great in the future. Yeah. So I think that's kind of where we're at in the moment in Nashville with the restaurant scene is like 
good things have already happened, but really great things are coming. Yeah, it's it's uh, really fun to watch. I mean, you know, I grew up in Nashville, and again, it was it was just so sleepy. You know, uh, you know, we didn't have this food scene like we have now, and I never thought twice about it until we had it because I just grew up without it. But it's 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 fascinating to me to see the caliber of concept that is that is now being delivered in Nashville. I feel like. You know, you look at what Chad and Gracie are doing, what y'all are doing, what, uh, honestly, there's a huge immigrant population now in Nashville that is starting to do some really incredible concepts. And, you know, we're talking about stuff that Nashville's never really seen before, right? Like at the Wash, we've got Peruvian and Cuban. And historically, Nashville hasn't had a whole lot of those concepts around town. It's, uh, it's, it's really cool, man. I'm, I'm excited for, for you guys to, to really be a part of that. Yeah. So are we. I mean, it's it's great to be here, and it's also you know very much like you said. It's uh, these are these are like the the first stages of you know this becoming like a very serious scene, um, and it you can see it when like okay, th- there's a Cuban place opening. Maybe it's the first you know good Cuban place in town, but pretty soon people are going to start taking Cuban food and dicing it up into okay. Now we're focusing in on this Cuban street food. Yeah. We're, we're, now there's going to be a Cuban fine dining concept. And so that's how it kind of grows, you know. And so hopefully, you know, a few years from now, five years from now, ten years from now, we'll be seeing this level of success all across the board where the quality of food has gone up, the quality of service has gone up, and the diversity of offerings are there. So where someone can go out and really feel like they're a part of a burgeoning culinary environment, yeah. um, which is great, you know. It's very exciting. So where do you think post-COVID, the restaurant industry is headed. It's changed a lot. Well, that's, you know, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? I feel like if I had a concrete answer to that, uh, you know, the world would be mine. There's, uh, that's, that's the question that's being mulled over in all of these meetings and all these restaurants across the country, right? Yeah. Um, but to me, you know, the COVID changed everything. It seemed like for the worse at first, but of course, all of these chefs and restaurateurs are some of the most creative and hardworking people out there. And so they took this these lemons and they turned it into lemonade. And the big takeaways for me are, you know, to-go food, that's not going away. Takeout food's not going away. Curbside stuff, you know, maybe QR codes was like something, you know, who, who thought about QR codes some since the 90s, you know, or the early 2000s? And now they're everywhere, you know? Um, and there's a lot of benefits to it, I think. Um, and I see these kind of trends happening in the restaurant industry that I'm like, okay, n- you need to look at it. I think, I think maybe the, the chefs, restaurateurs who are struggling a little bit might be looking at this as if it's gonna go away and turn back into what it was. And I think the really smart ones are looking at it as like, what can we learn from what has been forced upon us? Right. Pick the good out of it and keep that moving forward as like, a viable dining trend. Um, so to me, you know, like I said, I think creating that safe environment where wh- whoever it is is coming in <coughs> is feels good to dine there at all times, you know, um, and that changes the layout of your dining room and your service model and all of these things. Um, and less, uh, more of the hands-free stuff, you know, like the QR codes, yep. being able to online order, order from your phone. It's fewer touch points. Fewer touch points, speeds things up. 
you know? And so you can look at the bright side of these things and go, well, man, if I adopt this right off the bat, might be able to make more money than in a conventional restaurant pre-COVID. Um, so those are kind of the trends that we're looking at at Tootsie Lou's, and I know you're looking at, you know, yeah. with the wash, and um, we'll see where it goes from here. You know, it's it's a very interesting moment to be a restaurant owner and operator because there's, on one hand, there's like a deep existential dread that nothing will ever be the same. Right. But also these these restaurateurs, these operators, like, you know, we're used to living in a world of unknowns. We're used to, like, walking into gas being shut off or cooks no call, no showing, and we're kind of used to this, like, unknown. So I think if anybody's, you know, suited to adapt to the times, it's the restaurant industry. Uh, so, yeah, we'll see where it goes from here. It's going to be an interesting ride. Yeah, I agree. It's It's been interesting to see just how, I mean, how COVID has impacted Nashville, but also restaurants beyond. You know, I, I'm, I'm almost starting to see this massive divergence between restaurant groups where they're either going smaller or they're going even bigger. Right. Right. Like you, you see some concepts opening in Nashville that are 10,000 square feet. And I look at that and I just go, man, that's a lot of empty seats a lot of the day. Oh, yeah. Right. And then we've got, you know, these wash concepts where there's no seating inside. There's covered seating outside. And you have almost 100% efficiency with these units because even on a rainy day or whatever it may be, so maybe it's snow, you can still continue to pump out to go and delivery. You're not paying rent, overhead, labor to manage 10,000 square feet. Right. I mean, what was the, you know, obviously that's getting more into the numbers and, and the business side of running a restaurant. And I know for, for a lot of chefs that there's a fine balance between the 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 culinary creativity and then and then you know the business necessity where do you kind of fall in that are you more on the culinary side or do you like the business side too I, I love the business side as well you know and I you know like I said full credit to uh, to my time at at the Tatsia Group in Austin for kind of fleshing that out for me um, I you know you kind of have to live in both worlds right as an owner you know it's just something that you have to do and as much as I would like to be sequestered in a in a you know test kitchen somewhere just tinkering with food all day uh you know you have to make money at some point you have to make it profitable you have to make it viable and so it's kind of to me it's i always think about it as just taking in that big picture I always try to take a, a step back if i get too caught up in a particular dish or in a function of service or you know on some financial aspect it's really just backing away so that you can see everything at once and then trying to make a clear-headed decision from that. Um, but, you know, in, in regards to the the business model and service and, and these properties, I mean, that was the whole reason that we came out here. And we were, we came out here uh, in October 2019, I believe, and um, had all these appointments lined up to see all this commercial property, second-generation restaurants, uh, because we had to find a place to put Titsy Lou's. And... It, everything we you know looked at all these different properties all across Nashville and it was pretty demoralizing it was uh because we were going to do this on a shoestring budget we were going to do this with as low overhead and as little risk as possible yep. and that was kind of the only way it was going to work and um a lot of these properties like you said were multi-thousand square foot 5,000 plus square foot uh properties with you know half of that being the dining room and we knew 
because of the climate and everything that was going on, we're like, we're not even going to use the dining room yeah. for at least the first year, but I still have to pay for it. So that doesn't make sense. Um, and we just got to this place where we were like, man, it's really tough looking at these second gen properties with these huge dining rooms and huge patios and all this stuff. Uh, we needed something slimmer and sleeker to get off the ground and even consider success in the future, you know? Um, and so I remember just, I, I just cold called you yeah. <laughs> just straight the phone number off the website, uh, you know, saw, uh, this guy specializes in East Nashville. He's a native. He knows the territory and a lot of your projects were interesting. You know, you were taking unusual properties on yeah. and, um, and that really appealed to me. And I remember talking, talking to you on the phone and just hearing excitement come into your voice when I was describing what we wanted. Uh, and then we met at the wash. Uh, yep. which was still just a car wash at the time. It was a ghetto car wash at the time. <laughs> and I was a little, you know, we didn't know if we were in the right place or not. We're like standing in this vacant, yeah, it's, it's cold. Really you pull beat up, up. There's a big dude wearing a big jacket with a beard. Like, exactly. He's supposed to be here. Right. <laughs> but, you know, now, uh, a, over a year later, seeing what the wash has become and what it's slated to be, I mean, I couldn't be more excited to open yeah. in this, this thing. It's, uh, I couldn't really imagine it another way, you know? It's like if you look at, um, if you're a small startup and you don't have a lot of, just a million dollars sitting in the bank to start this thing, uh, which a lot of, certainly chefs don't, you know? And no. that's that, I think that's the thing that really gets me is like, I see all these talented chefs that are working for someone else. They're maybe at the sous level or the exec level, but they're not owners. And so they they don't have particularly deep pockets, but they have a lot to give as far as talent, as far as culinary talent. The food that they cook is incredible. And a lot of them won't ever make it out. They won't be able to serve the food that's in their, their hearts, you know, to guests. Because if you're talking about 500, 600K just to even open, that just eliminates a lot of people out the gate, you know. I think that's the greatest tragedy in the restaurant industry. I mean, how many incredible concepts never came about because a chef couldn't afford the $500,000 to build out a restaurant and then didn't have the credit to sign a 10-year lease? And I mean, there's, there's just so many barriers of entry there. Totally. You know, we, I talked about this with Chad uh, a couple of weeks ago, Food Truck Revolution, right? I mean, that hit Nashville like 10 years ago. But that opened the door to all these really cool concepts in Nashville that may not have otherwise had a chance. Right. So it was uh, it's it's fascinating to to see that start to start to kind of come about. But yeah, I, I remember that that day that y'all called um, because y I mean y'all right from the the get go y'all were not looking for a typical restaurant, which I thought was really interesting. But. It was, uh, it's funny because it was not the first time I'd ever gotten that call, especially in COVID. Sure. And uh, yeah, I got super excited because I was like, ooh, I want to test out this concept and see, you know, what an actual restaurant group thinks of it. I talked to Chad about it uh, just to kind of get his thoughts, but you want proof of concept from as many sure. people as possible. So yeah, it's, it's funny, you guys. We, we went and met on the site. It was just a car, like literally just a car wash. I'm pretty sure a guy pulled up and tried to wash his car while we yeah, were there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, like falling apart, didn't look good. And I told, I kind of walked them through like, here's my like silly dream of what we're going to do with this property. 
and you guys were like, cool, we're in. Yeah. I mean, flew back up a couple, uh, like what, a month, two months later. Yeah. And we signed over drinks at Attaboy. Yeah. It's like, what a, what a cool experience. Exactly. Yeah. And it seemed, it seemed very organic, which was, uh, you know, I, maybe a little superstitious, but those, I always try to follow those signs. Anything, anytime yeah. anything falls into place, it's like, all right, let's see this through. Um, but yeah, I mean, the wash is such a unique thing and it's something that it, you mentioned the food truck boom. It's so funny looking back on the history of, of the restaurant business and all the different things that I've done in my career, you know, opened a food truck right. with, with Drew, Chef Drew actually, um, in Austin. And we kind of touched on all these different angles and there's pros and cons to all of them, right? Totally. And the food, the food truck thing, that boom happened in Austin, you know, 10 years ago and was great for a second. It birthed a lot of really tremendous concepts and we got a lot of new food out of that boom. And then people started to realize, okay, well now we need to find lots. And then all of a sudden there was a right. demand for the lots to park them. And then all of a sudden the city permitting offices that had to inspect and approve all these trucks was backed up for years because a thousand of them had opened in a month and they just couldn't deal with it. And so That's crazy. that boom kind of went like that. But I, when it, you know, if you're a chef that's trying to start something of your own, there's only a handful of options that you can really look at. Yeah. And it's like the traditional route that I expected to take for most of my career was the very old school traditional method. Like I got to build up my name somehow not being an owner or even a head chef, you know, and that's like the hardest thing is you work your way through these ranks to maybe get to sous, sous chef or maybe get to an exec position or a CDC position, but you're still not the main name attached to that right. restaurant. There's still always someone above you. So that kind of limits your ability to be known, which you have to be known in order to sell yourself to other people. And if you're lucky enough to have a few people that are interested that have some money, you have to cook dinner for them and pitch yourself, this is my concept, this is my food, and show that it's viable. And then if you're lucky enough to secure that bag of money, you have to turn around and spend all of it just to get to day one. Yeah. You know, you have to build the entire kitchen and we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment and, you know, walk-in coolers and hood vents and all of this. And then dining, the dining room, build that out and make that comfortable. And then, well, now in order to even make this thing functional, I have to hire this massive staff and train them and make sure all these bells and whistles are just so, just to get to that day one of grand opening. And even then, you have no idea how you're going to be received. You don't know if it's going to be a success at that point. But now, all of a sudden, you're five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars in debt to other people. And you know, having opened these restaurants for other people, doing exactly that, got to the end of it. It was just like, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't have no the stomach thanks, for this man. anymore. You know, this doesn't it doesn't seem appealing anymore. It's just just to get to that first day. And then you have all the regular stresses of running a kitchen and running a service and hiring and firing people and all of that, controlling all these numbers. But that happens after this massive stress. And now it happens under this cloud of, of debt that I've accumulated just to make this thing function. Um, yeah, and you're operating on what? A, a 12 to maybe 20% net operating margin? Totally. It's and so, so narrow. It's so, yeah, it's so narrow that you know, you have a bad month and man, doesn't matter. You got to pay that loan back. Exactly. And so many, so many of my friends who have gone on to cook great food and open their own restaurants, 
are just saddled with this weight where they are oper- they're still trying to do the best they can and have excellent service and excellent food, but they know that every bad month adds on to their payoff date to a place where they can maybe eventually think about becoming profitable. Um, and what's, what's crazy to me is I've seen people adapt to this by kind of just assuming from the start that they're never going to be profitable. And restaurants will live their entire existence That's knowing. That's mind-blowing to me. It's insane. I mean, if you think about it in pure business terms, it's insane. You're, it's kind of you're building up something that you know will fail just so that to create enough waves to move into another project that will hopefully then be successful. Yeah. We are the Uber of restaurant groups. Exactly. <laughs> I we mean, will it's, never be profitable. <laughs> people are leveraging their whole, uh, you know, this, this massive amount of money and time just in the hopes that that first failed restaurant, when it closes, will create enough buzz that they can fold everything into a second restaurant. And that, to me, is just insanity. You know, it's not, oh, it's not the best way to go about, you know, spending your time or your talent or your money. No. But I mean, it does. One thing it does say is is the passion behind the the chef or whoever it is, right? Because knowing that you're not going to make money and you're likely going to lose money in this venture, and you're still willing to take that risk because you, what you think is what you think you have is special enough to take that is that's pretty powerful. Sure, definitely. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, there's so much. Uh, Chef Drew and I talk about this a lot because we both came from fine dining kitchens and we have probably a pretty permanent affection for fine dining, um, you know, and just the things that you can do in that environment with that kind of equipment and that kind of staff, you can't do out of a food truck or, or any no. other place. Um, and you imagine Catbird seat operating out of a food truck. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So places like Catbird are, are incredible and those meals are magical and they Gosh. stick with people and, you know, and that I think will will always be there. Um, and for us coming from fine dining, it's just a matter of like how much of this can we take with us into another environment where our success looks different. Yeah. And that's where I think places like The Wash um, and these micro unit restaurants really is special because you actually can have a storefront. You can have a little bit of yourself in the design and layout of the, of the space. You can elevate your service a little bit beyond just, you know, a takeout to go window. Um, it affords you more opportunities to kind of create the environment and the experience that you want to accompany right. your food without going the full fine dining route and also being on the other end of the spectrum where you're in a tent with a propane tank or, you know, in a truck. Yeah. So to me, it kind of hits that sweet spot where it's like, I can do so much more in this micro unit than I could ever think of doing as a pop-up or a takeover or a food truck. But I don't have all of these bells and whistles of like a fully built out brick and mortar fine dining restaurant, yeah. but also don't have any of the cost attached to that. So it's kind of this nice middle ground where it's like, I think we can achieve, you know, with Tootsie Lou's, I think we can achieve a lot of the food that we set out to do without burdening ourselves with this crazy amount of debt or you know, right. Unnecessary bells and whistles. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the, that's one of the more fascinating aspects of the, of the project for me. Right. Cause I mean, we were talking about this a little bit before, but you know, I, I don't have a culinary or restaurant background. We just kind of had this cool idea and, and decided to act on it based on some conversations we have with some restaurant groups we've worked with. And to see those, those pieces of it kind of fall in place where it's like, yeah, 
we don't have to have, you know, we don't have to be dressed to the nines to make this concept work. We can make just as much money, if not more, and have more flexibility and have more control over what we want to like actually present to the customer out of this micro unit. Sure. I mean, it's it's been. Um, I had a couple of conversations with some of the other groups uh, that are going in, and I mean, some of them are predicting you know high six figures to to low seven figures a year. Oh yeah, out of three hundred and ninety square feet, if you include the walk-in cooler, right? I mean, that's wild to me because you know, I mean, most restaurants, if you're doing a one and a half to two million dollars, you're doing pretty decent. Yeah. Um, what? What do you think is contributing to that? I mean, is is it really the the indoor seating is not that important? Is it the to go and delivery piece that is just it's become so popular? That's what's pushing it, or why do you think that is? I think it's definitely a confluence of all those factors. Um, ultimately, I think it's just about efficiency, and if you have the experience and the wherewithal to find a concept that matches the space versus creating one the other way around. Um, and I guess, you know, going back to when my wife and I visited before we had signed on the, with the wash and we looked at all these places that looked great, you know, that it's like affordable price per square foot and there's already a kitchen in there. Uh, there's already a dining room and the bones are there, and which is really appealing when you you walk into a place, you're like, oh, the backsplash is there, the counter, the bar, everything's built. Yeah, easy. And you, you think that it's going to be less money going in. And then when you actually get into the nitty gritty of it and start pulling things apart, you realize, okay, well, this hood vent is 10 years old. I'm going to have to replace it. That's 100 grand, you know, 80 grand. Um, and maybe this bar doesn't exactly suit our flow of service. So now I have to modify it. And so you're basically paying extra to get someone else's leftover restaurant, but then you're paying that money again to make it your own. And by the time you get to opening, it's like, man, I've kind of built a restaurant twice at yeah. this point um, just to make it functional for me and my concept. So I think moving the other way around and looking at the 380, 390 square feet of the wash bay and saying, okay, what food could I realistically push out of this space you know, I, I won't have access to, like, all the bells and whistles maybe that I'm yeah. used to. Like, we're not going to have a smoker or, a you know, a wood-fired grill. But what food makes sense out of this, which is, you know, tacos, I think makes so much sense no to me brainer. because I can do it with a plancha and maybe a fryer. You know, I need two things. And so I think having the creativity to design a concept based around the space rather than the other way around is a great way to start strong. Um so, yeah, I think usage of the space, I mean, some of the places that I've worked in, you're almost more efficient as a cook and a server when the space is limited rather than having to walk, you know, a couple football fields back and forth to run food or, yeah. you know, in a giant kitchen. I've been privileged to work in both huge kitchens and very small kitchens, and sometimes the smaller ones are better because you can just turn around rather than taking steps and things like that. One of my favorite bars in East Nashville is Attaboy. Yeah, Just definitely. because those cocktails are I mean, amazing. They're probably some of the best bartenders in town, hands down. Absolutely. And they were very intentional about that. You know, that space was actually probably bigger than what they originally wanted. They wanted something small, intimate, so that when 10 people were in there, it felt full. And 
you go in there and you feel that and you want to be a part of it and it's not too overwhelming. You know, when you walk into some of these other concepts that are in town, they're a lot bigger and you get seated in a section and you're one of two tables, it just feels empty. There might be the same amount of people in that restaurant, but because it's so spread out, it just feels empty and weird. And it almost makes you second guess, like, why isn't anybody here? What's going on? You know, but Attaboy, you walk in, it's it's always crowded. Even if there's only two other people in there, it's crowded. Yeah. Which I love. And that's, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's like one of the most interesting intangibles in the restaurant business that, you know, uh, when I was in Austin, um, Chef Drew and I, uh, we worked for a ramen company. And we noticed, I, I opened five restaurants for them. And by the time we opened the second one, we noticed a, a notable difference in the service between the two restaurants. Really? Same exact menu, same food, same, you know, everything. And the, but service was flowing really different. And so we started crunching the numbers trying to figure out why it was different. And what we realized is in the second restaurant, there was a window that showed, you know, it was fast casual. It was like you order at the counter. And so there are people waiting to order. And the second restaurant had a window that showed where you could see the line of people waiting to order from the dining room. And so it created this very subconscious kind of pressure, I think, in the dining room where people people inside felt good because they were at a popular spot, but they could also see the people waiting for the next table, which just sped up their meal by like, Interesting. A couple minutes. And so we were doing more turns. We were doing more business out of that restaurant. They were just more conscientious. Just because of, of where the window was in relation to the, the dining room. Wow. And uh, so I think that's like an interesting thing where it's like, like you were saying with Attaboy, it's like you want it to be intimate but not claustrophobic. But you also, you don't want to make it so big that when it's slow, it feels dead. Yeah. Uh, because then people are, are going to start second guessing while they're, why, why they're there. Uh, so those little things, I think, all kind of add up to to being able to control your space. You know, if you can pick something that's the right size for the kind of concept that you're trying to do, all of these intangibles, all these positives come with it that you may not even think about. I mean, there's no no book on restaurant management or restaurant business would ever tell me to make sure that my line is visible to my right. dining room, you know? Right. But it made a, a pretty tremendous impact on the sales and on the turn, so... All those little things are kind of floating in my head as, as we look at opening Tootsie Lou's in the wash. It's like, you know, we want it to be the best it can be, but we want to do it small because small is going to work for us. You know, yeah. it's like we were looking at, at staffing and, and things like this uh, coming up on the opening and like talking about payroll and all these things. And we're like, honestly, our staff can't get that big because there's you not enough room for yeah. these bodies. Which is a great thing because if one, if somebody can stand here and reach three stations, well, then I don't need to pack three bodies into ten feet, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it kind of works that way, on a, on a weird level. There's like a it's like a bell curve. I feel like where it's like your efficiency rises to this point based on the size of your kitchen and the size of your dining room, um, and at a certain point you get too big, it kind of starts to taper off and you get less efficient. So. You know, hopefully the wash is kind of that sweet spot. Yeah, right there. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to be getting feedback from everybody too. Once y'all are actually in there and operating, because obviously we're doing multiple locations for this concept, but it's it's so about efficiency. It's like how can we just keep fine tuning it and make you know the the wash 2.0 is going to be hopefully ten times better than this one. 
which I think is already 10 times better than most restaurants, but we're just going to keep continuing to dial that in. I know you guys obviously haven't gotten in and started operating within the space yet, but coming from a larger kitchen and a larger space, moving into something a lot smaller, I mean, how are y'all kind of like strategizing your your day-to-day, your food prep, your operations? I mean, what is that, like, how is that different from a traditional restaurant? Sure. Uh, I mean, efficiency is the thing. You just have to keep that in in the forefront of your brain at all time and think about, you know, when it, when it comes to like a more fast casual concept, uh, volume is kind of the name of the game, and you basically wanna you wanna expand your volume as far as you can without breaking other parts of your business model. Yeah. So, you know, food quality, temperature of things. You know, with Eastside Pho, I'm sure like temperature of the broth is gonna be a huge issue for them. It's a big deal. For um, them. and for us, it's our tortillas. You know, we're doing like these. Which, which they're hand-making, by the way. Exactly. D- doing it all from scratch, grinding our own corn. When you do something like that, I mean, the tortilla has an expiration date on it that starts ticking as soon as you start cooking it off. And we want to have the ideal flavor and texture reach our guests by the time they're sitting down to eat it. And so when you're thinking about things on that level, it really sometimes it comes down to seconds where yeah. you're, you're, you're analyzing every motion you make and you're saying, okay, like, why am I reaching over here if I could just be reaching here? And that may not seem like a big deal, but when you add up all those seconds. When you do it a thousand times. Maybe it's an hour every service. And that's an hour of paid labor that now I can, like, completely get rid of from my equation. And thinking about all of those those parts. So it's just, you know, it's thinking about max efficiency as far as space and storage placement of shelves and like yeah. every every detail has to be calculated but ultimately if you if you lay it out correctly um and obviously like you said once we get in there i'm sure there will be like a few weeks where we're like moving things around like up oh, put this shelf in the wrong spot yep. time to move it over here um but once you get those things all those those elements really dialed in your service can really fly and you can feel the smoothness of it where it's like man we're crushed busy but this feels easy yeah and that's kind of the just, goal that I always try to shoot for. Your arms are blurred, but you're standing still. Exactly. <laughs> and you can just push out so much food. You can feed so many people yeah. without really breaking a sweat. And that's like, if you can achieve that, why would you not try to? You know, that's the yeah. goal always. No, I think it's it's something great to strive for. I actually did a very similar exercise earlier this year, just trying to figure out how much I drive every day and how much that ends up like impacting my schedule. Sure. An hour a day of driving throughout the year is four full business weeks of time. Like it's, it's crazy how one <laughs> hour a day adds up to that much. Yeah. And then all of a sudden at the end of the year, you're talking, that's some real money. That's you a know? month. <laughs> what could, what could I do with a whole month in, of time back? Exactly. You know? So like, I need to hire a driver and uh, <laughs> yeah, work in the back. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Jeremy, what's what's next for Tootsie Lose? Are you guys considering franchising? Are you going to do multiple locations? You know, uh, Chad and Gracie, they're adamant now in, in the point of their career. Like, we're doing one concept at a time, and they're all going to be different concepts. I mean, do you all have kind of a, a five-year, ten-year plan for Tootsie Sure. Lose? Yeah, I, we have a million five- and ten-year plans right now. Um, and I think, you know, that's kind of the name of the game in the restaurant industry is, like, you have to keep one eye pointed forward and one eye behind you. 
and be able to pivot exactly. Uh, so we, I think, I think you know, for myself, I have like a pretty short attention span, and as soon as we locked this in and like had the lease signs and had the menu designed, I immediately was like, okay, what's the next thing? What is it? You Start know, working on it. And Drew and I would talk about food that we wanted to cook and and what those concepts would look like. So there's certainly more in the future from us. Um, at this point, we're trying to stay focused on the present moment. Make sure that we get off the ground with quality, um, because you can never you can never redo those first impressions. You know, yeah. we want to make sure that Nashville knows that we have a really quality taco to sell. Um, we want to ingrain ourselves in the community and and continue to make friends and promote each other and like be a part of that warmth and that welcomingness that yeah. embraced us. We want to pass that on to other people. Um, but certainly there's going to be a lot more in the future. And, you know, I, the times are, are so wild now. It's like, I feel like almost year over year, things are changing so drastically. So yeah. it, at a certain point in the future, it almost becomes counterproductive to plan out that far. So, you know, I think at this point we have too much source material to work through and it's just going to be a matter of like, all right, now we have this place open, everything's smooth, business is going well. What do we feel like doing next? You know, yeah. what's the next thing? Um, there will never be a shortage of ideas, just a shortage of time and <laughs> things like that to pull it off. So I know that problem all too well. Exactly. Too many <laughs> ideas, not enough time. Uh, going off on a little bit of a tangent here before we close it out, you guys sent me your pitch deck. The very beginning. Yeah. And there were four members of the team that's true <laughs> and that was what ended up selling me on the concept i was like oh man these guys have the branding down Can you tell us about the fourth member of tootsie lou's yeah so uh the fourth member is tootsie lou herself um that's my wife and i uh our our firstborn dog and uh <laughs> <Firstborn dog. laughs> she's uh she's just kind of our spirit animal you know i think we were being a little silly uh, when we were writing the concept and, and figuring out all the bells and whistles. And, uh, and it, Tootsie Lou's was just supposed to be our working title. Yeah. That was just the thing. It came out of Megan's mouth one day. We were like, that's great. We'll put it down as the working title just so we aren't referring to it as the company or the concept the or the thing. Concept, yeah. yeah. And uh, we'll come up with something better later. And we tried, and everything we came up with kind of sounded a little forced and a little inauthentic and or like we were trying too hard and uh kind of came to realize that within tootsie lou there's so much warmth in there yeah. it's like she's just a, a, the most loving creature she's excited about everybody she loves to meet everybody um loves food can't keep her away from good food you know and uh she was named after megan's grandmother uh luann which has this very like Texas grandma kind of warmth to it I that we felt that. like really embodied the hospitality of the South, specifically Nashville and this warmth that, that y'all have going on here. Uh, so it just kind of, it, it hit all these buttons for us and we were like, it's perfect. That's the name, you know? Nailed it. So uh, yeah, Tootsie Lou, we always joke that she's like our chef de cuisine. She yep. has final approval on all the dishes, <laughs> uh, which will never be a problem because she'll eat anything you put in front of her. Everything. <laughs> But yeah, that's kind of the fun. We wanted to keep that sense of fun, you know, um, and yeah, it's been it's a kind real of like joy. Tongue in cheek, and that's what I loved about it. Totally, and it's it's such a joy coming from coming from this world of fine dining that oftentimes tends to be take itself a little too seriously. Yeah. You know, sometimes things are a little too sterile and dry, 
And at the end of the day, it's about making people happy. You know, that's that's the, the end goal is feed as many people as possible and uh, and just create memories and experiences and, and, and joy for other people. So it's like, why not name it after the dog? The dogs give, you know, they just manufacture joy. Love that. So <laughs> who doesn't love a, a good, happy food eating dog? Exactly. Taco eating dog. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Jeremy, that's a great note to end it on. Um, if anybody wants to learn more about you or how to find Tootsie Lou's, where, where should they go? Uh, so we have a website, TootsieLou'sTacos.com. Um, honestly, right now, as we're getting close to the opening, I think Instagram and social media is kind of yep. the best place. Uh, uh, so at Tootsie Lou's is our Instagram handle. And that's a great place to follow and just see updates on the opening and all the pop-ups that we're, we're going to do in the future. And we're going to just keep doing tons of fun stuff, so it should be great. Love it, man. I'm yeah. excited for you guys. Big year coming in 2022. And that is it uh, for the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast for 2021. We will see you guys uh, in the new year. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast, brought to you by Hamilton, your resource for passive real estate investment opportunities. Visit www.investwithhamilton.com to start building your passive real estate portfolio today.